We live in a day and a time when it's very common and very popular to be extremely critical of the church of Jesus Christ. Now sadly, this is often as true among those professing to be Christians as it is among those who oppose Christ and His church. I've often heard professing Christians make statements along the lines of they love Jesus, but not the church, or they love Jesus, but not other Christians. And these sort of statements typically coincide with the question of why do I need the church? And and honestly, these sort of questions, they they betray a, a real lack of understanding of Scripture, and they reveal just a deep level of conformity to the culture around us. Right? The culture around us is very individualistic. Right? We, we like Rambo who can do it on his own. Uh, the rugged individualistic mindset is kind of the way most people like. The, the person who pulls himself up by his bootstraps, who squares himself away, Uh, and makes his fortune or his name. We like stories like that. That is kind of a part of the American mindset in general. And what can happen is we bring that cultural, rugged, individualic mindset into the church. And when we do, that mindset says, well, it's me and Jesus, and we don't need anyone else. And that's a very common thing. I've heard that. In 17 years of being a pastor, more times than I could count. But people who embrace that mindset, they typically have sort of a a view that they don't need the church unless they want the church. Right? If I want the church, I know where it's at, but otherwise I have no need for it. Me and Jesus, we've got this thing lined out. Uh, along these same lines, the these professing believers, they... They have no real, they feel no sense of responsibility toward the church. doesn't matter what goes on at the church. It's not, I don't care. I don't need the church. If I want the church, I think it ought to be there. But I'm not responsible for the ministries of the church or anything that the church does. There's just me and Jesus. And this mindset, it is terribly, terribly wrong because Jesus didn't die to create millions of rugged individualists. When you read Scripture, what you find is that Jesus died to create the church. One new body from all of the individual people. And the church that Jesus died to create is one that that is intended that we are to be devoted to and a part of because that church has an impact and an influence on the community around us. And I want us to look at that this morning. Open your Bible to Ephesians 4. We're going to look at verses 7 through 16. Uh, That should be on page 896 in your pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Ephesians 4 and 7 says, But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is that? But he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. And he that descended is the same that also ascended far above all things, above the heavens, that he might fill all things. 
And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastor teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and to a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, may grow up into Him, into all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, making, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. The title of the message this morning is The Victorious Christ and His Powerful Church. Let's pray. Our Father, we love You today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our devotion. And Lord, we need You. We need You to strengthen us and encourage us. We need You to fill us and to guide us. We need You to teach us the truth from Your Word. We need You to help us to understand Scripture as we ought. To understand the importance of Your church as we ought. We need You to break down the the strongholds that we have erected. We need You to break down the cultural mindsets that we have embraced. We need You to change us, to make us more and more like Jesus. For Father, on our own we will not be like Jesus. On our own we will fit into the mold of the world and we will be worldly. We will be carnal. We will eventually depart from the living God. And we need You to prevent that within us. Heavenly Father, God, today that we would hear Your Word that we would take it and apply it to our lives and we would see that it does apply to me. Not that it applies to them, not that it applies to the others, but Lord, we would see how it applies to us specifically. Fill me today with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Guide me that I would say and do only what you want said and done. Have your way all of our hearts. We ask in Christ's name for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now what we see in verse 11 about apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers, it picks up where verse 8 left off, right? If you were here last week, we looked at verses 7 through 10. And if you notice, like in my Bible, verses 9 and 10 are in parentheses. So that's a parenthetical thought. So but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, gave gifts unto men, and then... He begins to list the gifts, some of the gifts that he gave. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Now, these are some very specific gifts that he is mentioning. These are often called leadership gifts. The, the gifts that, are, that he has given for the work or the leadership of the local church. And, and what I want to do is take some time and, and understand what these particular gifts are so that we can understand what, what we're all supposed to do in response to the fact that Christ has given gifts. Now, he mentions first apostles. Now, there are two ideas associated with apostles. The first would be what we typically think of when we talk about the apostles, and that would be those who hold the office of apostle. That would be like the eleven and the apostle Paul. These were the authoritative founders of the church who worked in a very unique way directly under Jesus. These people received direct revelations from God and they wrote them down and what they wrote down became for us 
our New Testament. Now the other and less familiar idea associated with apostle is that of an apostle being someone that has been sent forth by Jesus on a mission. Right now, because when you look in the New Testament, you find that there are others beside the eleven and Paul that are called apostles. Right? Um, these include James, the brother of Jesus. He's not one of the eleven. Barnabas is called an apostle. Um, Andronicus and Junia. And, and interesting enough, Junia is a woman and she's called an apostle. It is also possible that Silas and Timothy and Apollos were considered to be apostles because of their close connection to the apostolic ministry. Now the second group that I mentioned, these are people who have a, what we would call a, a gift of apostleship, but not necessarily the office of an apostle like Paul and the twelve or the eleven. And the difference between these two is that those in the apostolic office had apostolic authority. They, they, they were able to have authority over churches, not just a church, but over multiple churches. They received revelation from Jesus and they wrote scripture. Right? But those with the gift of apostleship were sent by Jesus to proclaim the message of Jesus. Now, the second idea of apostle, it comes from two places. First is the word for apostle itself. The Greek word for apostle is apostolos. And in the Greek, it literally means a messenger or one who is sent forth. The second idea for that second group of apostles, it comes from Paul's words in Romans 15 and 20, where he said that he wanted to go and preach Christ where Christ had not yet been preached. So you take those two ideas together, one who's sent forth and one who's going to preach Christ where Christ has not been preached. And what you find is someone who is sent by Jesus to go to hard places where there has been little or no gospel proclamation, where there are little or no Christians, few or no churches. But we might call this in our day typically a missionary. It's the same sort of an idea. It would include those from history like David Brainerd, who took the gospel to the Native Americans. Or Dr. David Livingston, who took the gospel to Africa. Or Hudson Taylor, who was, was the, took the gospel to China. All of those were essentially the first to go to that group of people. And it would be like modern missionaries who give up the safety and comfort of home. To go into a new territory, they, they, they persevere in the face of tough resistance, spiritual and natural resistance, and they seek to plant the gospel. Right? We might say that those people have the gift of apostleship, but do not have the office of an apostle. Now, few among our free will Baptist brethren use this terminology. Some do, but few. But it's becoming more and more common in evangelical circles to talk about people who go like that as having a, a gift of apostleship. Then there is prophets. Now, usually when we think about a prophet, we think of someone who foretells the future. And truly, prophets sometimes did this, but that was not their primary role. The primary role of a prophet was simply telling what God had said. When you read Scripture, you see that the main job of a prophet would be to go to a people and say, Thus saith the Lord. Now, primarily, their message dealt with the ways that those people had violated God's word. Thus saith the Lord, you're doing this. God has said to do that. Therefore, you must repent and turn back to God. But think about prophets as prosecuting attorneys, God's prosecuting attorneys. Think about guys like Elijah, Elisha, Jeremiah, and Isaiah. What was their primary mission? 
Primarily what they said was, thus saith the Lord, you are sinning. You have violated God's covenant. Now turn back or else this is going to fall upon you. This judgment will come. In many cases, even their predictions of the future were based upon what God had already revealed in His law. Right? The law of God, the covenant of God that the Israelites had taken said, if you keep my covenant, here are the blessings that I will pour down upon your people and upon your nations. If you violate my covenant, here are the curses that I'm going to bring upon the nation. And a lot of times, their predictions of the future were, God is about to fulfill the curses of the law. You have violated God's law, and now all of these bad things are about to fall upon you. So someone who might have what you call a prophetic gifting would proclaim God's word in such a way that it felt like God was dealing with us on a very personal level. The, the word would speak to us so specifically, it would almost feel like they had insight into our personal lives. Those with a prophetic gifting would also be extremely burdened by the sin in our culture and just could not stop preaching against it. They would cry out against it constantly. But what we would understand about it is those that are truly have a prophetic gifting, they would not be crying out against the culture at large. They would be crying out against the sins of the church. Because when Jeremiah went, Jeremiah didn't go to the Philistines. Jeremiah went to the Israelites. So today, someone with a prophetic gifting probably wouldn't be screaming against the sins of America as much as they would be screaming against the sins of the church. Because Scripture says judgment must first begin. Where? In the lost and dying culture? No. In the house of God. Someone with a prophetic gifting would also call out immorality and injustice in leaders. And then there are evangelists. And evangelists are those who have a special burden to share the gospel with people who don't know Jesus. And they would also encourage everyone else to share the gospel with those who don't know Jesus. Now there are different, two different ways primarily that the gift of evangelism is seen. One is like the Billy Graham way. Right? Billy Graham did pastor for a few years. But not very long. And he really never referred to himself as a pastor. Billy Graham was an evangelist. That was his heart's cry. Was to gather groups of people who did not know Jesus together. And preach to them the good news about Jesus Christ. And urge them to repent of their sins. And believe in Jesus. That is the gift of evangelism. Another way the gift of evangelism would be seen. Or the gift of an evangelist would be seen. Is in those who, who we might call in. Especially in the old timer language. A soul winner. Right, Somebody who, they, they ne don't necessarily preach to a crowd. Right? They're not going to gather a stadium full like Billy Graham did. But no matter where you go, and in what circumstance they find themselves, they are going to see the opportunities that present themselves to talk to people about Jesus. And when that opportunity arises, they are going to take it every single time. So regardless of how it's lived out, an evangelist is someone who seeks to do all they can to share the gospel with others and then urge them to repent of their sins and trust in Christ as their Savior and Lord. They also encourage others to be busy about the business of sharing the gospel. And then there are pastor teachers. Um, from my understanding and my study of the scripture, 
Pastors and teachers, it is the same gift. They are linked together in this passage. It is not two gifts of a pastor and a teacher, but a pastor-teacher. Now this isn't saying that there is not a unique gift of teaching that is separate from pastoring. There absolutely is. We find it in other places in Scripture. But in this case, when it comes to the leadership of a church, the particular gift is a pastor-teacher. In fact, when Paul gives the qualifications for a bishop... In 1 Timothy 3, someone that is apt to teach is specifically mentioned. So there's a pastor-teacher. Now, for the pastor part of it, the Greek word translated as pastor, it essentially means a shepherd. One of the ways to understand the, the proper role of what a pastor or a shepherd does or should do is to look at the references to Jesus as the shepherd of believers. When you look at what it says about Jesus as the good shepherd... We find also that the Bible teaches that Christ is the chief shepherd and that pastors are the under-shepherd. Right? So the job of a pastor-shepherd is to feed the flock, to care for the flock, to guide the flock, to seek to restore the sheep who wander away, to protect the flock from wolves and thieves and all who would try to destroy them, and then to separate the sheep from the goats. Now one of the primary ways... The pastor-shepherd would do this is through teaching God's Word. But Scripture teaches one of the primary jobs of the pastor is to give himself to the ministry of prayer and the ministry of the Word. This means that the pastor-shepherd, the pastor-teacher, must spend significant time studying the Word. He is not to be flippant with it. He is not to take it lightly. In fact, in Jeremiah 23, when it talks about false prophets, which we looked at a few Wednesday nights ago, it specifically talks about false prophets take the word of God lightly. right? And so the pastor shepherd is not to do that. They're to spend diligent time studying to be sure they understand what did it mean to the original hearers. What does that mean to us in our day? And how would it be lived out in our context, in our culture? And then they would communicate it in a clear and a compelling way. And the goal of the teaching is not merely to inform. It is not merely to say, I have this knowledge, but to encourage people to bring their lives into conformity to the Word. That they would say, well, I don't believe that, but now I'm going to. I don't live like that, but I'm going to. Right To cause them to shift their lives so that they would be the way the Word says people ought to be. And the pastor teacher of all the gifts that we've talked about this morning are the ones we are most likely to see at the local church level. Now something to note is the carryover from last week's message to this week's message. Last week we saw that unto every one of us is a gift given. We talked about that that gift is meant to be used. We see that in this passage as well, right? Because he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastor teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And we'll talk more about that in a minute, but for now, for this part, the idea is everybody has a part to play to ensure the church is healthy And functioning the way that Jesus intends. That is one of the great things about the true church of Jesus Christ. Right? There's not the pastor and the laity. And the pastor is up here and and your job is just to come and listen. That's not the true church. In the true church, everybody gets to play. 
In the true church, everybody gets to be a part of it. Everybody is able to do what Christ has gifted them to do for the glory of God, the advancement of the gospel, and for the edification of the church. One of the primary jobs of the pastor, according to this passage, is to equip all disciples of Jesus, again, all disciples of Jesus, to do the work of ministry. Jesus never intended one person to do all the work that needs to be done within a local church. His idea was that all of those he redeemed would be active and involved in using their spiritual gift for the glory of God, the advancement of the gospel, and the edification of the church. Everyone has an important part to play to make sure the, the church functions as it should. And the rest of this passage that we've read shows the powerful impact of what happens when everyone does their part. See, when everyone does their part, something significant, something powerful, something amazing happens in the church and in the community where you find the church. And what I want us to know is that the victorious Christ created a powerful church. Not only a gifted church like we talked about last week, but a powerful church that can and does make a difference in the world around it. Now the way that it starts is it does start within the church. right? Notice the edifying of the body. And again, we'll talk about that in a second. But what happens is as we do our part, the church is benefited first. But as the church is benefited, those benefits spread onto the, congr- onto the, the culture and the community around the church. So what... What happens as we each do our part? Well, the first is the church is built up. Right? For the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, one of the main ideas associated with the word edified, as it's used here, is that the church grows in maturity. Right? Believers mature or they grow spiritually when they use their spiritual gift. That, that's a huge thing to understand. Because the reality is... A believer in Jesus Christ is doomed to spiritual immaturity if they are not active in using their spiritual gift. Right? There, are, there are places and ways of spiritual maturity that you will not experience, that I will not experience, if we do not use the spiritual gifts that God has given us. When you look at churches that split and fuss and fight over inconsequential things, You will find, typically, churches filled with people who have no concept of what their spiritual gifts are and are not active in using their spiritual gift to serve Jesus, to advance the gospel and edify the church. Because without actually serving, we will spiritually stagnate. We will become immature, divisive believers in that way. In the same way, a church is doomed to spiritual immaturity. If the people aren't actively serving Jesus. Right? Because a church, there is no nebulous organization called the church. There's just us. So whatever our church is, that's a reflection of you and I. As we we are the church. So if our church is active and thriving and growing and mature and loving and kind and evangelistic, it is only because you and I are those things. 
But if our church is cold and uncaring and unevangelistic and spiritually immature and fussing and fighting and problematic, it is because we are those things. We are the church. And whatever we are, the church is. And now believers, we all cause others to grow and mature when we use our spiritual gifts. I grow spiritually every time I use my spiritual gift for the glory of God. I can see significant growth in my life simply through doing what God has gifted me to do. But if I'm doing it properly, I'm not the only one to benefit from it. If I'm using my gift in the way that Jesus intended, not only do I benefit from my use of my gift, but you benefit from my use of my gift. And as you use your spiritual gift, whatever that is, you grow spiritually. And you grow. But if you're doing it properly, you're not the only one to grow. I benefit also from your use of your spiritual gift. And the way that it works is, as we all use our spiritual gifts, we benefit individually, and then we benefit one another corporately. So when the church is firing on all cylinders, my gift benefits me, and my gift benefits you. And your gift benefits you, and your gift benefits me. And we all are meant to do our part. Now, this is a reminder of why we need the church. Christianity is not meant to be lived out Lone Ranger style. It cannot. It cannot be lived out Lone Ranger style. You cannot effectively, faithfully live out your devotion to Jesus by yourself. Just think about all the times the Bible says to one another, one another. Love one another, forgive one another, bear one another, encourage one another. How do you one another just yourself? You can't. You need the church and the church needs you. That's just the way that Jesus intended everything to be. Jesus did not save not a single one of us to be rugged individualists who do not need the church. He saved each and every one of us to be a part of the church, working together for the common good, using our gifts for His glory, for the advancement of the gospel, for the edification of the church. The church is built up as we each do our part. Secondly, the church is unified. Look at the first part of verse 13. Till we all come in the unity of the faith. Unity of faith refers to a common conviction about who Jesus is, what Jesus came to earth to accomplish, what He tasked us as His church to do. Right? These are common things. These are the core of what holds us together. Who Jesus is. Is We should have absolute unity as a church body on who Jesus is. There should be absolute unity on what Jesus came to earth to accomplish. And there should be absolute unity on what He has tasked us as His church to do. Now, the idea of unity here carries with it more than the idea of nominally accepting, well, yeah, Jesus is God. And he came to earth to seek and to save those who are lost. The church is to go and make disciples of all nations. It's more than that. Unity here means that we are so committed to that that we will lay aside the lesser things of life to work together for the common good of that. That we are devoted to one another and to this mission 
Because Jesus is God. And He came to earth and He died on the cross for our sins and He rose again and He gave us a mission of making disciples of all nations. And if God will become flesh, die for my sins and give me a mission, I will devote all of my life to doing His will above all. And the fact that we differ on some things, what we have in common is so much greater than what we have in difference that those things don't even matter. Look at like Philippians 1.27 where it talks about coming together as one man with one voice and with one heart. That's the kind of unity that we're to have when we gather together as a church of Jesus Christ. We are to work together because we know that what we're working for and who we're working for It's far greater than anything else. And again, when you find a church without unity, you find a church filled with people who aren't active in serving Jesus. The old saying is that those who row the boat don't have time to rock the boat. Those who are active and using their spiritual gifts, man, if I'm using my gift and doing all that I'm supposed to be doing... I don't have time to to drop out all the things I don't think Scott's doing right. I don't have time to look and say, well, I can't believe, I think think red, I don't think church should have red pews. Red's red's the color of harlotry, and I just think that's a bad look for the church. I I don't have time to say, well, I bet you if they've got a car that nice, they probably aren't giving very much. Those sort of thoughts, that sort of mind process, it always flows from someone not serving Jesus. Because if I'm busy finding and using my spiritual gift, I just don't have time to worry about what you are or aren't doing or silly little things that would bring strife and division in the church. So the church is built up, the church is unified, and the church is Christ-centered. Look at the next part of verse 13. And to the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, the knowledge of the Son of God is more than a, a knowledge about Jesus. Right? The goal of what we do is more than to transfer information, but is for people to come to a real experiential knowledge of Jesus Himself. We're not trying to download information about Jesus, but we are trying to help people come to know Jesus. To know Him. All through Scripture, part of the teaching is that we can know Him. I mean, that is over and over and over again. In fact, in later in Ephesians, in our series, we're going to talk where Paul says that Jesus is the teacher of truth and He is the truth that is taught that we should know Him enough that He is our discipler, He is our teacher. So our goal, our goal isn't just to teach people these facts about Jesus so they can then recite them, but so that they can experience Jesus, they can know Jesus, and they can love Jesus. And and when you're in a group filled with people who know Jesus and love Jesus, guess what the focus of that group of people is? Jesus. It's not on secondary things. It's not on unimportant things. When we all know Jesus and we all love Jesus and we all experience Jesus, He's the focus. And our desire is to worship Jesus. And our desire is to help others know Jesus. And our desire is to build His kingdom. And our desire is to please Jesus. 
We aren't serving at that point because we have to or we're supposed to. We're serving because we love Jesus and He is wonderful and amazing and awesome. When we know Jesus, we preach Jesus. We don't preach lesser things. Jesus becomes central to all that we say and all that we do. If the church is built up, the church is unified, the church is Christ-centered, and the church is Christ-like. I love the last phrase of verse 13. And to a perfect man, the full or the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, in the King James, it does say perfect man, but the word perfect there carries with it more the idea of mature. Right? It's not perfection that we all have it all lined out and we never get anything wrong. It's more that we have spiritually matured to the point that we are like Jesus. That we know Jesus so well that the lives we live, the way we think, and our commitment to ministry accurately reflect the life Jesus lived, the way Jesus thought, and the commitment Jesus had to ministry. Now, so think about what the Bible teaches us about the life Jesus lived. When we're all doing what we're supposed to do, our lives will look like Jesus. Does my life, does my life look like Jesus' life? Does your life look like Jesus' life? When we're all doing what we're supposed to do, we will think like Jesus thought. Do I? Do I think about things and people and issues and circumstances in the way that Jesus thought about them? Do you? When we're all doing what we're supposed to be doing, our commitment to the mission will be the same as Jesus' commitment to the mission. So it is, is my commitment to the mission of making disciples, seeking and saving those who are lost, is it? Reflect the way Jesus' commitment was. It is yours. As each and every person does his part, this change begins to take place in our lives. And we each become more and more and more like Jesus. As the church is built up, the church is unified, the church is Christ-centered, the church is Christ-like, the church is stable. Look at verse 14. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love. When every person is doing their part, the church matures and grows so that the church is stable and not constant. And as believers, we are stable. And not constantly changing our mind about what's right and what's true and what the Bible teaches. Scripture teaches that new believers are like babes in Christ. And a, a child can easily be deceived and led astray. And, and that is true of a new believer as well. In the picture here, tossed to and fro, it pictures someone who constantly changes their mind about what they believe every time they talk to someone new. They talk to someone that's a 
Baptist and they believe like a Baptist. Then they talk to someone that's a Nazarene and suddenly they believe like a Nazarene. Then they talk to Jehovah's Witness and they believe like a Jehovah's Witness. Then they talk to a Mormon and they believe like a Mormon. And then they're they're this and they're that and they're changing constantly. They're never settled. I, I know a guy, sort of. And when I first met him, he was a free will Baptist. And then he became a Reformed Baptist. And then he became a Presbyterian. And now I guess he's like Greek Orthodox. Right? So in like 15 years, he's had four or five massive theological shifts. That is the opposite of what's talked about here. Right? If we are mature in Christ, we aren't constantly being tossed about by every new thing that comes along. And yet, you do see within the church at times, churches are constantly changing their identity, what they are, what they do, how they believe. And it's just going from this to that to this to that. That's not, that's not being relevant. That, that's not reaching the culture. That is signs of spiritual immaturity. And the church is not what it ought to be because the church is what it ought to be. We are stable. We know the truth. Now that doesn't mean we don't alter and change and we don't grow. But good grief, if I am changing with every person I'm talking to, I clearly am not growing and grown in the Lord. When every person is doing what they ought to do, the church is stable and people are not led astray within the church. And a part of being mature is that we can speak the truth in love. Now, there's two applications to this. First is speaking the truth is in a stark contrast to false teachers. Right? We speak the gospel and we, we don't waffle and we don't water it down and we don't make it more palatable to unbelievers. Yes, Jesus is the only way. Yes, Jesus died for your sins. Yes, if you don't repent of your sins and believe in Jesus, you will absolutely go to hell for all of eternity. That is absolutely a sin. It always has been. It always will be. That will never change. That's absolutely a part of what it means to speak the truth in love. We speak the truth, but we don't act like jerks when we do it. We speak the truth in love. Part of it also means when, you're, when we're spiritually mature, you can speak the truth to me and I can take it. Do you know one of the signs of an emotionally immature person is they cannot handle correction. An emotionally immature person cannot handle it if you say, you didn't do that very well. You should do it this way instead. That's not right. You should do it like that. You know the signs of a spiritually immature person is? They can't handle being corrected from Scripture. No, what you believe is wrong because the Bible says this. How you're living is wrong because the Bible says that. If, when someone talks to you and shows you what the Bible says, and you get mad and you want to take your toys and go home, it is not because you are so solidly in Scripture you know the truth. It is because you are spiritually immature. In a spiritually immature church, you cannot have hard conversations with one another because you want to keep the peace. And that is not the kind of peace Scripture calls on us to have. That is not the kind of unity Scripture calls on us to have. It is a unity based upon truth where we can have hard conversations with one another and still be brothers and sisters in Christ who love one another, forgive one another, help one another, and encourage one another. The church is stable as each person does what it ought to do. And then finally, the church is effective. The last of verse 15 says that 
they may grow into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body is fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body and the edifying of itself in love. As we grow, as we each do our part, what Jesus does is he then begins to direct us to the place where we ought to be. Right now, you may have no clue of what your spiritual gift is. I remember when I had no clue what my spiritual gift was. I just wanted to serve Jesus. And so I prayed and I sought and I tried. And eventually, over time, Jesus clarified and pointed me to exactly where He wanted me to be. And as we seek to grow, as we seek to find and to do His will in this, He will show us where we ought to be. Listen, there are spiritual gift inventory tests. You can Google that. And there are online gift inventory tests. You can take those and give you a place to go. There's a lot of things like that you can do. But the best way to find out what your spiritual gift is, is to seek Jesus and try something. Because if what you're trying isn't what Jesus is gifting you to do, guess what? You will figure it out quickly. It only takes one children's church lesson to realize you ain't supposed to work with children. But it only takes one being up in front of people trying to teach to realize teaching ain't your gift. And when you try and you seek, Jesus will lead you to where you need to be, where he wants you to be. And as this happens, it makes the church grow spiritually. It makes the church healthy. It makes the church grow. It makes the church filled with life and with love because it edifies itself in love. Two, two quick truths before we close. First, the church should always have people at various stages of spiritual maturity. Every church absolutely should have people that are solidly mature in Christ. They've grown in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. They are stable in their knowledge, devoted in their lives, and they are sold out for living for Jesus. Every church has to have that. At the same time, every church must have new believers, young believers, who have no real clue and are just trying to figure out what all of this means, how it's meant to be lived out. If a church stagnates at either end, it will become unhealthy. You have a church filled, well, I'll just say this, if you have a church filled with people who claim to be spiritually mature and have grown and devoted to the mission of God, but there are no new or young believers, the people here are not nearly as mature as they think they are. At the same time, when you have a church filled with all new believers and no mature believers, it is all over the place. That is an unhealthy church in both instances. The church needs people from every end of the spectrum in its church growing and maturing and finding its way. Part of what that means is, those who are new to the faith, you need to listen to those who are longer in the faith, who are devoted to serving in Jesus. Listen to their counsel. Listen to what they have to say. Listen to their guidance. Learn from them. It also means those who are more mature in the faith, you have to let new believers make mistakes. You have to let them try things that don't work. You have to let them make mistakes and without judging them and being hateful and snarky to them. Because we have to work together to get to where we need to be. And second, again notice, every person is important. 
only way the church from whom the whole body fitly joined together, compacted by that which every joint supplies, according to the effectual working of the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body and to the edifying of itself in love. Every person is absolutely needed. The church cannot function as it should if every person that's a part of that church is not finding and using their spiritual gift, doing what Christ has for them to do. The picture of the healthy church that it gives here is the church where everybody's playing. Everybody is doing their part. When you read the book of Acts, you can't help but see there are differences in the church in Acts and the church today. Why is that? Has God changed? Has His commands changed? Has the Holy Spirit changed? No. What has changed? In the book of Acts, they knew. They knew every person had to do their part or something important would not get done. They knew that they were needed and they were necessary and they could not coast in life or the church would die and not reach the culture and not make disciples of all nations. We have absolutely lost the urgency of the mission of Christ. We have absolutely lost the urgency of every part, every person doing their part. And churches all across America are struggling and dying because 20% of the people do 80% of the work and 80% of the people just sit back and soak it up and do nothing for the health and the life of the local church. And the church will not have revival, will not make an impact and will not do what Christ intended for it to do until every person steps up and says, I will do what Christ has gifted me to do. This is me. This is you. This is each and every one of us. It's not enough to hope that God will change lives in our church. It is not enough to hope that our church will make a difference in our community. It is not even enough to pray that lives will be changed in our church. It is not enough to pray that our church will make a difference in our community. Jesus will not make these things happen in our midst if we sit passively by hoping and praying and wishing and thinking and oh how great that would be but do not get up and do anything to make it happen. If we want Jesus to work powerfully in us and through us and for us to save our lost loved ones to make a difference in our community then there needs to come a time where each and every one of us stands up and says here am I. Send me. I will do what Christ has gifted me to do. I will find and I will use my spiritual gift. Let's bow our heads. I just want to close the message by inviting you to spend this time before the Lord in prayer. First and foremost, if you are not saved, you must turn to Jesus. You have no spiritual gifts and you have no part in the church until you have repented of your sin and believed in Jesus Christ. Everything begins there. That is your first and great need. So if you're not saved, I invite you, come to Jesus and be saved. If 
you are saved, but you do not know what your spiritual gift is, use this time and call out to Jesus. Start by saying, Here am I, send me. Show me what thou wilt and I will do. If you are not willing to go where He wants you to go and do what He wants you to do, you will always be hindered in your prayers and your seeking of His gifts for your life. And third, if you know what the Lord has gifted you to do, but you have not been doing it, it is time to confess that as sin. Turn from that. And say, Lord, I will do what you have gifted me to do. I will do my part within your church for your glory. Let's pray.